Welcome to this week's two-part episode of Past the Jam called Campfire Jesus, on For What It's Worth and the Space in Between. I'm your host, Blake Melnick, and I'm really excited about this week's episode. It is the first in-person interview we've conducted since the show began back in June 2020, the second episode of our Past the Jam music series, and the inaugural Passing of the Jam from our current artist-in-residence, Ben Hunter, to an exciting new artist. This week's guest is originally from Squamish, BC, but has lived in Mexico for large portions of his life. He now lives in Kimberley, BC with his family. He's a local legend in the East Kootenays and has played at various events and festivals throughout the province over the years as a duo with his cousin Kurt, as a solo act, and most recently with his band, The Tumbleweeds. Heavily influenced by the music of John Prine, Bob Dylan, Jim Morrison, Chet Atkins, and Jimi Hendrix, he is a prolific songwriter, drawing inspiration from the land and from the writings of existential philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. He is a gifted entertainer who effortlessly draws his audience into each and every performance. From soulful ballads to rockin' foot stomp and country blues, he keeps folks on the edge of their seats, if not completely off them, during his performances. Please welcome Oliver McQuaid. Oliver, great to have you here. I'm uh, stoked. This is our first face-to-face interview uh, since we started the podcast. Yeah, I'm very excited myself. Thanks for having me. I love the songs you submitted, and I'll be playing clips from each of the tunes throughout this episode. And, of course, we'll be playing the tunes for all the intros and outros to all successive shows until we get to the point where we pass the jam once again. So what's it been like for you as a musician living in Kimberley, British Columbia, and not being able to play live during the COVID pandemic? It's been tough and different, and I think those would be the two words that everybody would start with when describing that but it's also been interesting having a new young family to raise and a new career and other aspects aside from the music so playing live and that sort of thing shutting down has definitely been different but there have been other aspects that i fully am able to focus on that kind of make it a little bit different the not playing live thing is really interesting because we came back from mexico from living down there in March, March 20th, so just over a year ago, stuck in Mexico City for three days on the way back, dog and baby and hotel room, and (laughs) finally made it home. (laughs) And then had a few gigs, believe it or not. It was great to get back with the band and play live, and a few venues had figured it out here in Kimberley. And it was kind of exciting and different, and people were stoked to be out because restricting something a little bit makes it that much more exciting when you can do it. I agree. And you were at that show the, I was. on the golf course, and we had a blast, and then all of a sudden it was gone. Yeah. And it's basically been a year now, almost, since really playing live, and I've only done a couple just on my own with me in my suitcase since then. So right. it's been different. It's been challenging, but interesting in other ways. Well, that sort of give and take, that's been uh, fascinating. As you say, you just feel like you're maybe getting out of this and going in the right direction and things are returning to a semblance of normality. And then all of a sudden there's a pullback. As we saw just uh, yesterday yeah. with the BC government shutting down the Whistler Resort and uh, closing down restaurants and bars. And I know you had a show tomorrow night uh, scheduled and I had a table for that show. <laughs> 
Um, and unfortunately, that's no longer going ahead. I'm so. sorry, Blake. <laughs> you know, it's worse for you and worse for the restaurant. But yeah, it's very difficult for people. I think people miss live music, live entertainment of all kinds, but certainly music. We've seen that in the venues that were able to host it and provide it. The Stonefire, for example, took a couple of stabs at, at doing live music in the past, and it didn't really work out in the way that they had wanted. But now with COVID, they figured it out. They had their stage. They did the setup that they needed to. And they were the only game in town doing it. And you have to book a week in advance. That's right. You know, and that just really goes to show how much, how important it is to everybody. There are standing reservations yeah. every single week with the same people who who need to get their fix. And I think it shows how not even important, but necessary that aspect of culture and arts and things like that right. is in our society. Yeah, sure. and just seeing other human beings. <laughs> you know, really. On a basic level, for sure, yeah. 100%. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, these are the first live shows since September that I've seen have been out here, and both at the Stone Fire. It was a bit like Boy in the Plastic Bubble. Disconcerting seeing all the screens and the shields and the plexiglass, and I'm sure that's challenging for a musician too because you hear the sound and it sounds much louder when you're behind the plexiglass than it does when you're sitting out in the audience. So that's a challenge as well. But hey, it's better than not, right? Oh, I'll, I'll take it every day of the week. Yeah. I was so excited to get out and see people like you mentioned. And as you know, my style on stage is very interactive and conversational. So even though I'm on stage performing, I do feel like I get to hang out with everybody right. <laughs> and yeah. kind of catch up with them in a way. It's not like sitting down at a table having a two-way conversation, but to some effect it is. It is, yeah, sure. And uh, so that's been great. That's yeah. been really great. Hopefully by the middle of summer, we can come out of this a little bit more. Who knows? But you're busy. You have two young children. That's a handful. <laughs> that is a handful. Yeah. I am busy. That's yeah. an understatement. <laughs> well, so that's a, a good thing. The problem with COVID is if you don't have something else, you do, you're busy and focusing on a new family, and that's great. And I understand you're building a house. Yeah, we are. We actually close on it in two days, the property. And yeah, it's been wild designing something to suit our needs. And it's been really, really exciting. Yeah. So Kimberly's home now. Kimberly's home. And we, and we knew it would be. We had that sense. I grew up in Squamish. And when we first came to visit Kimberly and check it out, we'd had our eyes on it for a while. It felt like Squamish back in the day. And I loved my childhood growing up in Squamish. And Natalie makes fun of me because I compare everything in Kimberly to Squamish. <laughs> but to me, that's a huge compliment. And so we have always had this future vision of raising a family here. And not dead set on that. Things can change. And we're pretty fluid, go with the flow type of people. But we're pretty happy with the way the ship is pointing right now. Yeah. And you make a great point. Kimberly is very much like Squamish back in the old days. I used to go up to Whistler in the 70s and ski when there was... Nothing there. There was no black home or anything. And Squamish was kind of this McDonald's <laughs> on the way. Absolutely. And, and it's certainly flourished now. And it's a, such a popular spot for all the outdoor activities, the hiking and, and everything like that. And we were talking earlier just before the show about the Squamish Music Festival, which was uh, one of my favorite music festivals. Unfortunately, it's no longer going. Squamish really developed into a cultural hub and I think is continuing to do that. So how did you find Kimberly? Interesting. When I met Natalie, and that actually ties into your Squamish Music Festival because we were just starting to uh, to date and, and hang out with each other, and then we actually went to Squamish Music Festival <laughs> and had an amazing time. I could say we fell in love there, uh, but um, 
with the sorry you gotta ask the question again i lost myself <laughs> so how did you find kimberly <laughs> okay yeah so that's the thing is i'll if you ask a question and i know the end result i will start at the furthest possible <laughs> part from it and then eventually hope to get there so yeah so hanging out in squamish and at that time with natalie getting to know her she mentioned that she had done a real estate seminar and Kimberly was on the map for a place that ticked a few important boxes to us. Not that we were talking about moving, you know, to a place together at the beginning of our relationship, but she mentioned that she did a real estate seminar and that Kimberly had a ski hill and affordable housing and all this nature in the backyard and all these wonderful things that Squamish had and we had never been. So she was kind of dreaming about in the future buying a house here and what it would be like. So it was thanksgiving after that summer of the squamish music festival where we turned left on the highway so we were living in whistler and we were supposed to go see family in vancouver and instead we pulled out of tamarisk where we were living by creekside and we were about to turn right on the highway to head past squamish and into vancouver and instead we said want to go to kimberly and we turned left and drove 10 hours right it's a long drive yeah and it was it was nighttime too so we were just leaving at dusk and we turned left on the highway we had our camping gear with us as we always do and did and uh we just found a spot by the river just uh past lillouette and camped for the night and the next day made our way to kimberly and pulled into town and there were tumbleweeds blowing you know (laughs) little hint towards my band name but uh nobody in town and we went are are we in the right spot like did something happen here where is everybody drove up to the ski hill there's nobody is the restaurant open we go knock on the door eventually somebody yeah yeah we're open come in nobody else sitting at a table and we're just like what is going on here and then we realized that it's just a small community and people are at home having thanksgiving dinner with their families there aren't a bunch of people bustling around and stuff like that and so we ended up going to the bar that night and having dinner and we met a couple of people chris and ashley who we're friends with now but this is years and years ago and had a beer and were invited to a campfire in somebody's backyard and had a wonderful evening and we thought we could be here for sure and steered our ship towards that and as we watched kimberly grow we made our way back here in a pretty random way but camped out for three weeks shopped for homes and the rest is history well you know my own story about discovering kimberly 35 years ago and you thought it was desolate when you arrived As I mentioned in the last episode of the podcast called A Good Place to Be, when I arrived in the mid-80s, the mine was in shutdown mode, workers were being laid off, and leaving town to work elsewhere in the province and other provinces, and you could buy a house here for $10,000. And uh, that's when I bought this place. Incredible. Yeah. So you've got (laughs) a bit of equity in this. Yeah, yeah, a bit of equity, but... uh, If you want to unlock that, Blake. I don't have a mortgage. (laughs) Yeah. But you could. Yes, I could. I could. But it's kind of a remarkable, what I've seen over the years, the demographic has changed. A lot of young people came to Kimberly in the last 10 years for the same reason that you did, because it was affordable. It was accessible. You have an airport right here, and it's not a long drive from Calgary. So I started to see a lot of young people coming into Kimberly, and that seemed to change the whole nature of the community. We started to see things developing around ecotourism. The sun mine that was developed where the old tailing ponds were from the Kamenko mines. The trails being built from Kimberley to Cranbrook. The nature park opening near the top of the ski hill and the expansion of those trails. And so almost a reshaping of the community. I didn't even realize 
Mark Creek was there for many years because right. it was covered up and it was dirty and it was not an attraction at all. Right. And then all of a sudden it was. Yeah. Right? Now they say Kimberly has one of the youngest demographics in all of British Columbia, which I, I want to relate to music because I think that's when the music started. And I remember seeing you, I don't even know how many years ago it was, I, I equate you with coming to Kimberly. It's part of that experience. That's how much you've you know, managed to find your way into, into the culture of Kimberly and the surrounding area. And I've seen you play everywhere. And uh, it's been fantastic. So whenever I come, I think, I wonder where Oliver's playing this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I'm going to miss you this time, obviously, but hopefully when the weather gets warmer, you'll be outside again and, and playing. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to talk a little bit about your background and, and how you came to your music. You come from a musical family, correct? I and, do. And yes. Was, how much of an influence was that? For you. It, it was all of the influence, pretty much, especially as a younger kid. It was just all around me. You couldn't help be influenced by it. It wasn't like it was available to me. It was me. It was my environment. And it, it comes from every single facet of my family. So it wasn't just one particular person. It could be pretty easy to, to say, well, my dad was a musician and therefore... I emulated him and, and looked up to him and did it because of that. But that was just one part. My mom is an amazing singer and hugely creative person. My mom and dad sang together back in the day, and those are some of my fondest memories, them uh, harmonizing together and, and singing their songs. And my uncles and aunts, they all played. So every family gathering that we had was passing the guitar around and everybody taking their turn. And I just couldn't wait to get up and take my turn and show my stuff. And the biggest part of that that kept me going was the support, the unconditional support and appreciation for it. It didn't matter how good you were. They made you feel like a rock star. Right. <laughs> and I, I've told you before, yeah. I look back and think back and have heard a couple of recordings of me back in the day. I was not good. <laughs> That's a fact that I'm aware of now, but I was so unaware of it as a kid. Right. And that was the biggest difference maker. So as a dad now, I'm going to make darn sure that my kids are full of confidence, brimming with it. That's what kept me going. There was I wasn't shy at all. I thought I was the next Bob Dylan, the next Jimi Hendrix, the next whoever my entire childhood. And it was just a matter of filling in the blanks until I was famous. Right. You know, it certainly comes across. One of the things that always amazes me when I come to see you play is that you are so comfortable on stage. That's a real gift. I've seen a lot of musicians over the years, great ones, not so great ones, but very few have that level of confidence when they're standing on the stage. That You seem to feed off the audience. You want to talk a little bit about that and how important that is to you? That's one of the most important things when I'm playing live is the connection with the audience. And it's really interesting. There are a few places, and we mentioned the stone fire and how they have the plexiglass mm -hmm, up. Mm -hmm. The light reflects off of that plexiglass, and I can't quite see everybody the same way. And it really affects me. So you'll notice me looking around the, uh, the screen because I need that connection with people when I play. And another example is playing at Center 64. Wonderful venue, historic venue. I love that building and everybody involved with it. But the lights come on and I can't see a damn thing. And, and it really gets to me because then I'm just performing. I'm just trying to hit notes. And I'm just trying not to screw up my guitar. Right. And that's not what drives my music. The perfection, mm -hmm. the, the execution of it is not what drives my music. It's the effect that it has on people. And so if I can't see that effect taking place, if I can't see somebody's reaction to a lyric and, oh, they liked that type of thing, 
that's going to dictate how I finish this song, what my next song is. It's such an integral part of it. And Mm -hmm. I love that stuff. Yeah. I love it. Well, it's clear. As I say, you have no, there's no trepidation I get from you when I watch you on stage. You bring the audience right into the music. You actually look out in the audience. You can see people you know, and you actually incorporate something about those people into your songs, which I think is really quite charming. <laughs> yeah, it can, it can fall on its head sometimes, but I, I give it a shot. And that's sure. the thing is I know that the worst case scenario, maybe I say something a little silly or don't hit a note if I'm trying to do something particularly adventurous musically. It really pales in comparison to the effect that it achieves, you know, with bringing people in and making it interactive and fun. You've become kind of a local legend out here. Everybody knows you. Uh, Everybody says, oh, Oliver's playing here. Oliver's playing there. We should get tickets. What is it about your music that people find so appealing? I don't know. There's a lot of local legends here. I am one of many, and that's been the really cool thing of moving here and and discovering the music scene. There are a bunch of people that have that same sort of effect, and I think it's a combination of having a good audience. (laughs) I I know how to pick my audience. That's a big part of it. And then also just having fun and having accessible songs. I play a lot of John Prine and Johnny Cash and stuff that's funny, stuff that is just enjoyable to listen to. And then I guess it's probably the spectrum as well, because you can play some serious songs when it's not all serious. The serious stuff, you can feel it a bit more when it's lined up against something that's not so serious. So I think the variation in what I play and how I play it lends itself to a lot of people enjoying it instead of just one lane. Yeah. Well, you mentioned John Prine, and unfortunately, we lost John Prine this past year to COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm with you. He was one of my favorite songwriters of all time. There was something so visceral about the songs that he wrote. They seemed simple on the surface and yet conjured up such uh, strong visual images for me. Memories of my childhood, you know, still images of my family members engaged in mundane life tasks. And somehow he managed to capture it in a song. It's like, as he said in his song, he put pictures in the picture show. He's one of my favorite songwriters of all time. Mine as well. I actually grew up thinking that my dad had written all of his songs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think my kids did too. (laughs) Yeah, I I honestly, I remember hearing it on the radio one time being like, oh, some guy is doing dad's song on the radio. (laughs) He's not doing a very good job of it. No. That's one of the nice thing about being a father is you can convince your kids of all kinds of things. Oh, I, totally. I convinced mine that I wrote California Dreaming. There you and go. they said the same thing. Dad, they're playing your song on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You've talked about John Prine as being an influence. Who else is an influence for you? Well, it's changed over the years. I was totally a singer-songwriter guy as a kid trying to write music as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old living in Mexico, you know, on my own to a great degree, which was great for writing music. I don't know how we came across it, but my dad all of a sudden had a four-disc Bob Dylan anthology, and I just devoured it Mm -hmm. and absolutely loved it and all the different lyrical spins and turns of phrase and and stuff like that. So a lot of my early stuff and that, my brother, that song, very influenced by Bob Dylan. I used to sing it when I was 15, my brother. <laughs> and, and, and put on his voice. That's how it was written. But. Glad you changed that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, Bob Dylan was a huge influence and remained so throughout most of my early years playing music. But then Jimi Hendrix was huge as well. I was massively into his ability on guitar right. and trying to emulate that. 
And then I came across another CD that dad happened to have in the car, but The Doors, and I think it was another anthology. So we had most of the greatest hits and just fell in love with it. And then I got a Jim Morrison biography. Oh, I read that. Yeah, yeah. The No One Here Gets Out Alive. Yep. And that changed my life. Honestly, okay. I read that book and... I went and bought the next time. So we used to, we lived in Puerto Penasco in, in Mexico, Rocky Point, an hour or so from the U.S. border. And we would drive to Phoenix to grab supplies, <laughs> yes. things you couldn't buy in Mexico. And I would always go to the library and I became obsessed with biographies. So once I had the, the Jim Morrison biography, I went and bought every single book that he had read as a kid. Right. And a lot of it was Nietzsche and different things right. like that. And so I started devouring all these philosophy books and just going into this wormhole of why are we here? What the hell's the point of everything? Right. Trying to figure it out. And I had time to do it. I didn't even go to school for a year. Self-taught. Yeah. yeah. And even if I understood a fraction of it, it just by osmosis seeped into the questions that I was asking. So that's Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, and Bob Dylan are probably the top three from an early standpoint. Let's talk a little bit about your song. So My Brother, which, uh, by the way, I loved. It actually brought a tear to my eye. <laughs> <laughs> I remember years ago, I saw the great Chet Atkins play a song about his father. You know my brother's named after Chet Atkins. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and while he was playing the song, every band member was weeping. Oh, wow. Uh, as was I, just watching this. And my brother had that kind of impact on me. It made me think about my brother. We've had a complicated relationship over the last number of years. It, it's somewhat disheartening, but it made me think of him and miss him. It, it's a beautiful song. I think any song that has that kind of impact, that makes some emotion well up in you, is a really powerful song. You mentioned you, it was influenced by the existential philosophers, Nietzsche in particular. What about Nietzsche influenced that song? There's actually a passage, I don't know if it's called My Brother, I'd have to look it up, maybe it was, but some of the lines were borrowed, or the influence of the lines were borrowed from it, and it basically talked about if you were going to go out there and adventure, whether physically or mentally, <laughs> and try and figure things out and put yourself out on a limb, you risk a lot of things. So this like, go the way of the lover, my brother, Love and hate yourself as only lovers hate. Right, right. You know, it, what really resonated with Nietzsche was the juxtaposition. So many philosophers were, are, everybody, trying to figure out what the right thing is, trying to break everything down to the ideal, you know, figure it out. And what Nietzsche was saying is that you need the extreme light and the extreme dark for any of it right. to matter. Yeah. And so that's actually what my brother is about, is putting yourself out there and accepting that there are consequences to that, but that being the whole point. And the beautiful thing of song, why I'm hesitant to convey what spawned the song specifically, is that it can have so many different meanings to different people. And you saying that actually could not have been a bigger compliment because Chet Atkins uh, was a huge influence on my dad and our family. My brother's name is Chester for Chet Atkins. Mm. And... I think the song that you're referring to is the hat that my daddy wore, that one. I, I don't know whether it was called Father or Dad. I think it's that one. My dad played that at my grandpa's funeral. He couldn't practice it without crying. I can't play it without crying. Right. I tried to learn it, but then managed to do it at the funeral, of course, yeah. perfectly. <laughs> yes. But for you to compare my brother to that song, you could not have picked a higher compliment. It's a beautiful song. Right. Now let's jump to the next track you gave us, Gone. Tell us about that song. 
So I was living as an adult now in Mexico. So I went back to Mexico as a 20-year-old. My dad was living down there, and I wasn't the best musician. I was <laughs> the guy who played at the campfire and all that. But... And that's the name of this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope well, you don't mind. <laughs> we'll get to that. No, I, I appreciate it, actually. I just went to band practice for the first time in a million years, and I, I walk in, they go, hey, CJ, what's up? <laughs> and that's where that came from, being the campfire guy. But I wrote the chords to that song, and I remember sitting in my apartment. This was one of the first places I've had on my own, that I'm living on my own. I'm 20 years old, and I felt gone. <laughs> and I really enjoyed writing it. And I actually didn't finish the third verse. It was an unfinished song, mm. as many. It's a theme of mine. They, they sit on the shelf for years. It was coming back to Canada, and then I moved in with my opa, and lived on his blueberry farm in Richmond for a number of months. That's actually where my musical career right. really began. Right. But I, I don't know how much we can tell about this on here, but we'll give it a shot. So I worked at the airport. So he lived in Richmond. I worked at the airport. This is, again, where I answer a question by going as far as I can okay, to the other side direction. of it and then coming back. <laughs> and I would find all kinds of things at the airport, working landscaping at the airport. Anything I needed happened to show up the next day at the airport. Like somebody <laughs> left it behind because they were late for a flight. Honestly, I needed runners. The next day I find runners. They're still my runners. Right. This is 10 years later. So I could probably use some new runners. But I found a jar of weed <laughs> at the airport. Not recommended that people delve into stuff like that, but... I did. I brought it home. And I'm not a big weed smoker or anything, but I'm living at my opus house and I'm in the basement and I've got nothing else to do. I'm in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> the nearest bus stop's two miles away. And so I rolled a joint, smoked it under the, the patio there and wrote the third verse. And it was, <laughs> and all of a sudden I went, hey, this is a real song. And I kind of pieced it together and <laughs> made it happen. <laughs> yeah. And it's become the quintessential track that we can jam and everybody joins in right. and the sing-along and the foot stomp. So it's interesting how much it's grown. It is a great song and I've heard you play it many times. Here's Gone by Oliver McQuaid. Highest heights of the Himalayas, so cold. Or I'll head on down to Mexico, bury my feet in the sand. And I, I, I don't know if I'm coming back again. So the next one that you wrote in sequence was Heartbeat of the Earth, correct? Yeah, that would be. So that song, that's a special song to me. So me and Natalie, my wife, future wife, we uh, were camping on Kootenai Lake in the across from Caslow. So the Caslow Jazz Festival was going on, which is a magical festival. Mm -hmm. If anybody listening ever gets the chance to go, it is incredible. But instead of going to the festival, we drove on the other side of the lake and Natalie's got this, again, I'm going as far as I can for the question. <laughs> I'll find my way back or ask for directions if I okay. can. But so we have this uncanny, we, Natalie, has this uncanny ability to find unbelievable magical spots for us to camp and, and experience. So we're driving on the other side of the lake and we pass the campground that we had sort of aimed at. 
And we're like, I don't really know. It's not giving us the best feeling. So we kept driving. And the whole time I'm with Nat, let's just go back to the campground. It's on the water. It's beautiful. Let's set up the trailer and crack a beer and start a fire and get camping. Right. And she's going, no, 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 no. Trust me. There's a better place. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so we're driving up this Forest Service Road, away from the water, up into the mountains, I mean, we're the elevations going way, way up. And I'm going, now we're nowhere near the water. We're nowhere near where we want to be. What are you doing? She goes, trust me. And so sure enough, we see the sign going, deactivated road, do not enter. And she goes, there. <laughs> what are you talking about? Okay, we're too far. Let's do it. So we drive down this road. We've got the canoe on the roof of the Jeep. And we have to duck and maneuver under fallen trees, all this stuff, we get to the most magical spot on the water you could ever imagine. And we have it all to ourselves. And we stayed there all weekend. We canoed across to the festival and watched all the shows wow. floating stage from our canoe. Beautiful. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And we could go back to our sanctuary. And that's where we wrote Heartbeat of the Earth. So this whole time, there's smoke on the water it's the fire season's incredible. This is three years ago. Right, of course I remember. The fires yeah. are raging. Everybody's going, is this just the new normal that every summer we're going to have these incredible fires that prevent all types of things? And it was nighttime. And you know how we wrote it? I asked her to pick numbers from one to seven. <laughs> Letters from A to G. Hilarious. We came up with the key. We came up with the chord progression that way. And then we wrote that song together about uh, being there, swimming naked and hanging out under the moon and stars, and the bats were swooping in on us. And it was a, a pretty magical song to write. She's a good writing partner. Yeah, <laughs> And like adventure it. partner. <laughs> Here's Heartbeat of the Earth. Water is the blood that the mountains bleed And it kisses us in places the sun never sees The sun goes down, the bats come out it's their turn to feed And there's smoke on the water And I can hear it whispering to me And it sounds like the heartbeat The heartbeat of the earth She burnt the ground around her Ready for rebirth And I can't remember All those lessons that we learned But they linger in the air I love that song. Thank it you. really is a beautiful song. You also gave us a song that you wrote during the time of COVID. Yes. Yeah. And you like this song. Yeah, I do. It's funny. I, I feel like others may not like it as much as I do. And I think that probably happens to musicians often. I know there's quotes from Eric Clapton where he goes, he hates every song two months later that he writes. Like, he's not a fan of himself. Right. And this is a song where I am a fan of myself and other people <laughs> might not be. It was a music competition, a songwriting competition for some Canada music thing where they wanted a COVID type song. So mm -hmm. the, the theme of it was Alone Together. And I set about writing it and I came up with that cool riff. 
and uh, and challenged myself to write a song that I wouldn't normally write. And so the interesting part about this, and this is probably why I like it, you can't hear it when you listen to it, but the whole song is in the key of A, and I never play an A chord. <laughs> and so I kind of thought that was cool, because I'm such a, I'm a pretty normal three chord kind of guy. And it was fun to sing the chorus as if it was an A chord, but it's not. I'm huh. playing an E, and it's the little bit of dissonance that is so not my style that I really found it gratifying to have made it work and then at the very end it resolves on an a chord it right. finally goes to where it needs to go right. so i enjoyed that yeah. it, even if it uh, might not be the, the best song i really enjoyed writing it the song's called we're only human yeah wow. yeah the opening lyrics you you can build a shelter master of the earth it's all about how great are we as humans we've come all this way but we the reason we evolved the way that we are is working together yes that's the whole reason human beings sure. are as successful as we are it's not because we have no fangs in our jaws hands instead of claws we are supposed to be together that's yeah. where our strength comes from and so it is this mocking yeah you can build a fire you master of the earth but what's all your hard work really worth if you can't share your stories right and so it was pretty cool to explore that and and the effects of COVID on on people sure and that of course is what everybody misses we miss that human contact things we normally take for granted just seeing people not long ago i went over to vancouver island to victoria and how much i enjoy just walking the streets and seeing people in shops yeah. and in restaurants engaging with one another yeah. uh, because of course victoria's numbers are quite low and so life was somewhat normal over there mm. but i realized how much i just missed it and it wasn't that i needed to be talking to all these people i just needed to be seeing them yeah. and seeing them interacting and that was enough to give me a quite a lift actually yeah, yeah i think you're right i think people are unaware of the effect that it could have on them and i fall into that category as well i go yes so what we can't do some of the things we want to do i'll hunker down and focus my energy in other areas but after a year, you do start to realize that it has an effect on every little bit of you. <laughs> yes, it sure does. And yeah, so I agree for sure. And I think that impact is going to continue for some time, even once this pandemic is under control. I think we're going to feel the effects of it when I think about, you know, children not being able to socialize with one another during those formative years. That's going to be a tough thing for them to deal with. And I don't know how you make up for it. I really don't have the answers for that. One of the things that we talked about in a, a previous episode of the show was the creative elements that we think might emerge from COVID, especially in the era of music, where a lot of people have been sequestered, can't play live, but they've been writing mm -hmm. and they've been thinking and they've been observing and they've been reading. Do you think something's going to come out of that? The renaissance of creativity and new music? Yeah, I do. I'm 30 years old now and I don't know a time that has been difficult. <laughs> We're in this window of time where we haven't had a world war. Obviously, there are conflicts everywhere, but nothing that really touches us where we live and right. affects our day to day. We hear about it on the periphery, it's third party sort of stuff. Yeah. And I think what this does is like this jab in the rib saying, hey, life's comfortable and cozy because people made it that way. And it doesn't mean it's always gonna be like that. So who are you actually? Are you only okay because your surroundings are okay? Mm -hmm. Are you Great dependent question. on that, on everything just being hunky-dory? Or can you be okay with adversity? And so it's a little bit of a challenge to society saying, hey, what's going on here? Are we just going to live in this sort of manufactured utopia forever? Or 
are there some other questions we need to be answering? And I think that people are asking those questions. And whether I don't think there's a right or wrong sort of way of approaching it, aren't those the best questions to be asking music? Uh, yes, true. <laughs> Isn't that where music is able to navigate like some other things can't? Music plays with those in-betweens of right and wrong and questioning and not having answers. And so I absolutely think that some art has already come out. Yes. But once we've had time to digest all of this and sing about it and talk about it and write about it in a past tense, I think you're going to see some really creative stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite excited about it. Actually, I do think that is going to happen. This concludes part one of Campfire Jesus with our guest, Oliver McQuaid. We'll be back in a few moments with part two, where we will be joined by the current holder of the jam, Ben Hunter, live from Los Angeles. In the meantime, here's We're Only Human. To shut the world out What was all that effort all about? Cause one day you'll get lonely You might need a friend So open up your door Let me in Cause we're all Welcome back to part two of Campfire Jesus on For What It's Worth and the Space in Between. Oliver, I loved our conversation, but as you know, it is now time to move into the next segment where we will bring Ben Hunter into the conversation. Ben is on hold in Los Angeles, and he will take part in officially passing the jam to you. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the show. Great to have you here as always. It's been great listening to you guys. So, Oliver, you've talked a lot about your inspirations and how you got started and everything, but how did you get started writing songs? When did you start writing them? Uh, I started writing songs when I was 12 years old, and I remember the first song that I had written. I thought, <laughs> it's hilarious. So I was actually listening to a ton of Iron Maiden at the time. <laughs> 12 years old and rocking out, growing my hair out. I had hair down past my shoulders when I was 12. And my brother, who was 10, played drums. We had all the gear in my our basement in Squamish there. And we wrote this song called Hell Rider, trying to emulate <laughs> Iron Maiden. And it was, it's right. hilarious. It's so bad. But we wrote this song and we literally ran upstairs and we're jumping around on the couches going, we're going to be famous. This is it. We've just done it. <laughs> and so <laughs> we, it started at 12 and I remember the specific moment and I really didn't slow down after that. <laughs> That's great. So was that it? Was it you and your brother sitting around going, we got to write a song if we're going to get ahead in this biz, you know? Or how did that happen? I don't know. I, I didn't even really know what chords were. I just had like power chords, like just the, the, the two right. fingers on there. And I just slide it around and see what sounded cool. 
and try different effects on the amplifier and just messing around with that kind of stuff. But definitely the lyrics of from Run to the Hills and things like that from Iron Maiden came out. <laughs> this mysterious rider ripping through the town kind of thing. It's just too funny. I, I actually remembered it the other day and, and sometimes family members of mine will get me to play it and I can't even finish it because we just laugh so hard <laughs> <laughs> since you write a lot of songs have you just been writing constantly since then or has it gone in and out of phases or, or how does that work that's an interesting question so when I was young so right after that 12 year old period where I discovered that writing a song didn't have to be epic you could just do it and then we moved to Mexico. So from 13 to 15, I lived in Mexico. And that was prime time for writing songs because I was basically on my own, did a bunch of different schooling things, but had a lot of free time to myself. And I would write a song a day. My dad would come home from work and I'd show him the song that I had written that day. And so I was writing all the time then. And then when I got back to Canada and then into my adulthood, it would be a song a year, but really, you know, it slowed <laughs> sure. down and a lot of half songs and just not having the the tenacity to sit down and do the work of actually finishing it. So a lot of great ideas, uh-huh. but it, it definitely was realizing that it took work to get a final product and maybe being more critical of it at that stage. What about that? The first song that you wrote, you know, inspired by Iron Maiden, but then all those songs that you wrote in Mexico and the songs you've written uh, subsequently... Do you go back and look at those? I I think it was like, I think Wondering, which is a Neil Young song. I think he wrote that when he was 15 or something like that. And he put it on his Rockabilly album 30 years later. How do those early songs stack up? And is there a difference between those and the ones that you're writing now, you know? That's such an interesting question because I can look back (laughs) to those early songs and say, well, you didn't really know what you were singing about talking to my previous self right. or my kid self so you don't actually know what you were talking about then you just thought it sounded cool but when i do replay them and re-remember them and listen to any recordings that i have that have survived since then they're actually pretty good and i think that it kind of <clears throat> highlights that you can get trapped in your own logic as an sure. adult and as a more mature songwriter and when you're right unfettered so to speak as a kid you can just let that stuff flow and you're not judging it constantly and i think that can allow for some pretty cool stuff to come out i think songwriting is really balancing those two things because you don't just want a bunch of gibberish that you don't really believe in necessarily but you also don't want to logic yourself into this ridiculous song that makes so much sense it's not cool (laughs) well and, and i guess you were talking about that earlier in terms of suspending that part of it. You know, listen to the song we've had on the show here, and You Think I'm Bad, I love that song. You think I'm bad I tried to warn you of the danger 
So that's the most recent song that I've written. That one's only three or four months old or something like that. And <laughs> I've always tried to write these like epic, deep, solving the world's mysteries type songs. Right. And, and I never let myself just write a song that is my emotion in that moment. And it was really right. cool to actually do that for this one. And so it was me and Natalie had an argument or whatever, and, and I was sitting there with my guitar and, and just strumming a seventh chord with a little bit of a funky groove and feeling sassy or whatever. And go, I was just like, yeah. you, you think I'm bad? I've been on my best behavior. <laughs> and, uh, I love that. And then the next line, imagine if I didn't even try, like I'm trying here. And she helped, actually helped me finish it. And she's such a good partner for writing and finishing songs. But it was really cool to just explore an emotion or an idea there and follow it through to its conclusion. I actually went for a dog walk and put my son in the, the backpack and walked around beautiful day on the mountains and, and the snow and everything and wrote the rest of it in my head and then couldn't wait to get right. home and put it all down. And, and I'm really happy with it. So yeah, it was, it, that's a different one for sure, but I really like it. Yeah. I think that's what really appeals to me about it is that there's all this, it's so relatable. And especially that line that you just quoted, that's so, you think I'm bad now? Like, this is me being good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's, you know, imagine if I, and you even put in the line, which I always want to put in in that kind of song, which is thinking what it would be like if I didn't try. That's what I really love. So obviously with that, you really just followed how you were feeling at the time and just wrote it down. And what's the difference between that process and the process that you normally would use to write a song. I'm always interested as a songwriter myself. When I'm having that experience, I sit down and I try to say to myself, wait, what am I actually thinking? Because so many times when we speak to people, we say things other than what we're thinking. And I can really relate to your whole thing. If you ask me a question, I'm going to go back like 10 miles before and tell you all the background before I get back. And that happens to me all the time too. I lose track of the question. But so then when I'm writing, I try to pick out the actual words that actually describe what I'm actually thinking or feeling at that moment. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about your process in relation to that, how you normally do it, what you did this time. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I'm actually thinking about it a little bit differently now that you ask. Normally when I write a song, it's almost like I'm a few steps removed from it. So typically my songs are so nonspecific that it could really be anything. I might have my own sort of meaning and influence to it, but they're pretty heavily laced with metaphors and all this existential stuff, which is great. It allows a lot of space for somebody to put themselves into it and discover whatever. You, so you do that on purpose to create that space for the listener. Yeah, I think Norm so. Yeah, but maybe I've been scared of being specific, right? If I'm actually being honest, then maybe that's a part of it. So maybe it's intentional from an artistic standpoint to allow space for the listener, but maybe there's an aspect to it where I'm not being completely honest and <laughs> saying what I'm actually feeling in a moment. So it was really cool. And to me, it's a simpler song, but it's also not. It's as complicated and as complex and as important as anything else, if not more so 
when you're actually talking about some stuff that's in your head and your heart. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, because that song includes the whole idea of who you think you are, who you think your partner is, who they think you are, who they who they experience themselves to be, and the slippage between that. I mean, that's love, right? I mean, that's relationship. Hundred so percent. Really, you know, yeah. There's so much in there. That's and everyone can relate to it. So it is also very universal. And I think that's great. And also, can I just say that. Your performance of that song is great. Man, you have a great voice. It's oh, just a thanks. soaring voice and so fluid and everything. And I can relate to what you were saying. I was thinking about this as I was listening to that song and uh, what you said about Clapton. And Dave Grohl has said that too. And I, I had that experience. It's like I have a problem with my music and it's me. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> so it's easy to be your own harshest critic. So. What else would you like to say? I want to talk to you about being a musician and where you want to go and stuff like that. But is, is there more that you want to say about songwriting? You know, what keeps you doing it? Um, that's a good question. I've got this theory that speaks to the importance of creativity. That every time you create or any, anytime somebody creates something new, a piece of art or something that is new that did not exist before, you actually make the world bigger. Because if you think about it, this is so you can see this guy obviously read a bunch of weird philosophy as a kid. <laughs> so the world, there is only so much stuff in the world. At this very moment, there is the universe and it is composed of the stuff that is in it. What it doesn't have in it right now is my next song. <laughs> and that's a fact. You can't, you can't argue that. No scientist in the world can tell me that's not true. And so when I write that next song, the universe gets bigger, right? Because none of the stuff that existed in it previously goes away. I don't have to get rid of a song to add a new one. And so you are literally adding to life, the universe, and everything every time you create something new. So that is my ultimate, at the very bottom of the roots, kind of inspiration. <laughs> How's that? That's fantastic, man. I love that. I totally love that. I'm, I'm going to be repeating that to people. <laughs> Good answer. But, yeah, that's a great answer. I, think I wanted to talk to you also because you have kids, right? Yeah, yeah. I've got so, uh, a, a seven-month-old and a two-year-old. Your family has been a huge influence on you musically, and my family was too. And then, of course, just for everybody I heard, the Beatles and Neil Young and all the music. Music was such a huge part of our family life that it was always playing. And I had this funny experience where with my brother, since we're talking about brothers too, mm -hmm. he's a lawyer. He calls himself the black sheep of the family because he's the only one that's not an artist in the family. And I think he fears that his kids will become artists <laughs> because he's seen what a difficult road it is. And you had this incredible time in Mexico that was unstructured, that really fostered your creativity and let you just, you know, do nothing but do that. How do you think about creating that space for your kids while still looking out for their best interests? How do you navigate that or how do you see that? That's such a good and hard question to answer. <laughs> I think that's the question I'm like constantly asking myself because you do want to provide a ton of structure and safety and you want them to be okay and all of this kind of stuff. And I don't know, like I, I'm going to, I'm going to answer that honestly and not just how I think I should answer. Cause how I think I should answer is, well, I'm going to give them tons of space to be musically creative and they can fall down they can do all this kind of stuff. <laughs> but if I'm answering honestly to build this environment that keeps them safe. So I'll say this, 
My childhood was very unstructured at times, but as much as we moved around in different houses every year and living in Mexico and back and all this kind of stuff, I knew that I had my parents no matter what for anything. Right. So I always felt comfortable, like I didn't have to hold the world on my shoulders, like I was free to explore in that sense. So there was some aspect of structure or maybe not structure, but solidity, if that's even yeah. a word, <laughs> that, was, that was present to allow me to do that. So that's what I want to create. I knew that no matter what happened, I had my parents, I had my grandparents, I had this family unit around me. So that was the safety net rather than the day-to-day -day structure. So maybe I'm figuring this out right now on the podcast, but maybe that's the way to go is not have the rigidity and structure in the day-to-day, -day, but in the background, knowing that it's there. But you hit the nail on the head. That's really the question that needs to be answered for sure. But I think that's it, what you said, because you're making me think about is that movie, Life is Beautiful. Mm -hmm. And that movie, it's about life in the concentration camps in the Second World War. But he creates this fantasy life for his son. And that's the security that the son has. His dad is creating this incredible experience of life, that life is beautiful even in the midst of this terrible thing. And I'm thinking a little bit about what you said, because funnily enough, Blake and I were talking about this yesterday about COVID and what that represents in our world and bursting our bubble of security and safety where bad stuff happens in other parts of the world. <laughs> yeah. And here in the first world or in the West, like you said, for your lifetime, we've had this, this safety and this bubble and we haven't had to deal with that. And I guess there's something in that that I think about without you know, getting too heavy about it. Hey, let's get uh, heavy, man. <laughs> that yeah, makes me ahead. think about my earliest journals in Mexico and what I wrote on the front of it, and I still have it to this day, is that uh, perception is reality and that everything is relative right. to something else. So the theory of relativity yeah. is in every single thing. We are comfortable relative to those who are not, and we yeah. are happy relative to those who are not. And that's the whole thing with Nietzsche as well is that you have to suffer to experience happiness and I think that's been the driving theme of my music and writing so you actually hit the nail on the head there where we create these worlds for ourselves and the decisions that we make and, and the way that we interact with people and the way that we make choices and steer our ship create the reality that we're in like the life is beautiful guy who's to say that if the kid is happy and enjoying his day there who's to say that he's actually wrong actually you're not right. you're suffering it's like well no reality is what you make it <laughs> i was going to wrap up with that but i have to ask you this other question about that because <laughs> you know because of what i've understood from blake mostly because i haven't seen you live other than the video i've seen him during the porch session but Blake really loves your live persona and, and just how you draw everyone in and you're the campfire Jesus. You bring everybody into it. How do you feel about, and you've stated yourself, that it's my responsibility. People are there to have a good time and they're going to have a good time if I do the song well and if they're enjoying it. And so it is about enjoyment and it's entertainment. But knowing now that we've, we're having this pandemic experience, and this is one of the things I can never get off my mind. I know because I've traveled a lot. I know what's going on in the rest of the world. I don't feel comfortable just ignoring it, but I also don't want to bring everybody down all the time. You, yeah. know, and just be, you know what I mean? So how do you balance that? How do you balance the good times of the campfire Jesus with the Sermon from the Mount? How do you inject 
some gravitas here and there? Or do you think you should? I think that you do both fully. Instead of doing a little bit of each one or something right in the middle or navigating that middle space, I think you do both uh -huh. full on. So if you're doing right. a funny song, make it freaking hilarious <laughs> and, and, and really go for it. And if that's the style that you're doing, go for it. And then and, and if you're doing a serious song, close your eyes, tilt your head back and dig into that. Right. So that's what I would right. say is just 100 percent do both ends of that spectrum rather than navigating the middle zone. Yeah, perfect. If you're really writing a song about anything, whether it's the fun song or the heavy song. How can you do anything else, right? It's like that's a good really, point. really going for it. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's awesome. So let's go from there. Let's talk a little bit about where you're going, young man. Uh, you know, uh, you know, like, <laughs> this is the part I dread. What does the future hold? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I just well, shrunk in my know, chair. <laughs> yeah, well, not to worry. Uh, where do you want to go, and how do you want to get there? And let's start with that. What in I your career. what I want is by the time I go <laughs> to have a bunch of music that I've created that I've recorded in a way that I'm proud of. So not haphazard, but intentional. This is the way I want to represent that piece of art. I just want a bunch of that to exist and for others to have and, access to it. And so do you have clear ideas about what that is? Do you have clear eye musically in the sense of like, okay, I want this instrumentation, I want this kind of a deal, or not yet? Okay. No, I, I, I need a hand with that stuff, I think. Or I need to fully give my intention to that process, which I haven't taken the time to do. And it's probably actually yeah. both of those things, a little bit of help and a little bit of full focus on that. And so actually, since lining up this podcast and asking these sort of questions of myself, I've actually been a little bit re-inspired and had a rehearsal with my bandmates, drummer Ed and bassist Murph on Sunday. And it was really good. We, instead of flowing through a whole bunch of songs, we just worked on one song. We just worked on You Think I'm Bad. And it was really cool to give them, how are they going to do it? So Murph comes right. up with this incredible bass line that becomes the driving force of the song. So now I can back off on guitar, give space to that. The drums become a huge factor. As we add in the three-part live harmonies, instead of harmonizing with myself and filling in the gaps where I need them to be filled in, we naturally find our lanes and it changes the melody a little bit, changes where the harmonies come in. And then there's some extra stuff. So just having that group dynamic that you don't have when you're sitting in your bedroom writing a song makes a huge difference. So I think that's the current path is to actually have some regular rehearsals, be a band and get some finished products to the point where we can go into a studio and do it properly. I, I completely relate to that. And I would say, yeah, that's a great way to do that. But I would also just say, don't be afraid to push. I think that's always been my experience as right. a songwriter to band leader, that you got to push the other guys a little bit. Sometimes. It depends on the people. Oh, that's a good point. Then, uh, yeah. I'm the guy in the room that wants everybody else to feel comfortable. And so I yeah. think stepping outside of my comfort zone in a way that says, no, I'm not actually 100% happy with that. That's a tough thing for me to say sometimes. But I think you're right. If the ultimate thing that you want is a representation of your art the way that you want it, then that's not a terrible thing to say. That's just the thing that is necessary to say. So I, I do right. appreciate you saying that. Yeah, and I, I can relate to that too. I'm always conscious of, I've done so many sessions where no one's getting paid. So I'm very mindful of the, the gift and the contribution that guys are giving. 
And at the same time, and also I just love playing with people because the synergies that you're talking about experiencing with your band, that's the only way to get those things to happen, right? Totally. You know? And the, yeah, and so I'm always wanting to, to find people looking for the things that the other guys are going to contribute that I wouldn't have thought of. To me, mm. that always makes the whole greater than the sum of the parts. But at the same time, I've learned the hard way by ending up with some pieces of music recorded that I still cringe over because right. I didn't speak up. I, know, I have that too. And I, you know what? Yeah. You, you spent the time. And so if you're spending the time anyways, really spend it. So yeah, I, I yeah, totally absolutely. hear what you're saying. So it sounds like you have a great thing going there in Kimberly. Let's talk about this other part of a music career. <laughs> and let me say before we go into this, that there's a million ways to do that. There really are so many different paths to have a fulfilling career as a musician. And so do you want to move on from there? You've got a family, you've got kids, you're building a house. Is that what do you already have what you want? Or do you want to expand from there? Talk about that for a minute. I know Natalie always puts it in my head that what would you be doing if you weren't a family man? Would you be out on the road and all that kind of stuff? And I, I tell her every single time, and hopefully if she hears it on a podcast, it'll make it true. So, <laughs> Natalie, if you're... I was going to mention, yeah. this, people will be listening to this. <laughs> For real now, yeah. Yeah. is that I am exactly where I want to be. And that is 100% fact. Like, strap a lie detector to me. I am exactly where I want to be. I think that... If I envision the future of my music in an ideal way, it's playing festivals, playing my own music, traveling every once in a while with the family, packing up our trailer and doing a summer of festivals and, and having that experience. But more than anything else, like I, I'll always play live. And whether it's covers, my own music, a festival or the Stone Fire, I'll always play live or somebody's backyard or Blake's house. I, I just love playing music. So I'll always do that. So I'm not worried about getting that kind of fulfillment of playing with people, having people enjoy it. And But more than anything, if I can have some recorded pieces that will just exist outside of myself in the world, that's the, the ultimate thing that I would like to have in my musical career. Cool. Are there any good studios there in Kimberly, or do you have to go somewhere to get... Blake's got this crappy little one here that we could... <laughs> <laughs> No, there are. The Kootenays are just riddled with incredibly interesting musicians and people, and there are studios here. Like, I've recorded, so Gone, the version that we have for the show, was me and Kurt, right. uh, my cousin Kurt, who was, you know, my musical soulmate and <laughs> for years and years. Nice. And so he came to visit here in Kimberly, and we recorded at Ray's studio, and he's been unbelievable to musicians. Yeah, Ray's a well-known guy. He's been around the... He's, around the block. He's fantastic. So that's one guy locally I recorded with Heather. She set up a home studio and she's doing great things out of that and an incredible artist in her own right. And then there's a whole bunch of the, the pro ones on the sort of periphery as well. So I think a combination of all of those oh, will great. produce something. To me, it sounds like you've got a great thing. Is there anything that you haven't done yet that you want to do? Um, I think play a festival the only times since moving to kimberly so i used to play with cousin kurt <laughs> again 10 miles back yeah. we'll catch up That's fine. <laughs> uh, and so okay we're gonna go even further back so when <laughs> what back when i moved onto the farm <laughs> with uh, with my opa right. i called my cousin kurt he actually grew up in california palm desert basically 
and was okay. rem removed from us. And we'd only see each other at Christmases. And so the family would come up. His dad played with my dad in Whistler back in the day, in the 80s. They were like the band in Whistler, the McQuaid brothers. And so I grew up singing the lead, and my dad would sing the harmony. And my cousin grew up with his dad singing the lead, and so my cousin learned the harmony. So one Christmas, he comes out, and we're going we know each other's parts. Like we can just all of a sudden harmonize. We've never played together. So a few years later, I moved uh, to my Opa's uh, farm and was working at the airport. And I called him and I was like, Kurt, you're living in Vancouver. Let's actually see if we can be a real band or, or really do this musically and make money, play shows, record stuff. So he moved in with me and stayed on the couch for a few months. And then we got a place together. And one of our first gigs was actually my wife, Natalie's birthday party. It was a free gig. My aunt knew her and said, hey, I've got this gig for you. It's for free, but you'll get a ton of exposure because this woman knows everybody in Whistler. And I rolled my eyes and said, not a chance. <laughs> <laughs> and lo and behold, it was true. We went and played uh, Natalie's birthday and people that she knew knew the Whistler Blackcomb Foundation. And so we ended up opening up the hill every year and playing the new opening of the chairlift and getting all these gigs in Whistler. And it was the, the, the spawning of all of that. And I can't remember the original question. <laughs> so I do, fortunately. Yeah, well, it's just is there something you haven't done yet that you'd like to do? And you were talking about the festival thing. Yeah, that's right. So it wasn't until moving to Kimberly that I played on my own. And that was an interesting experience because I'd always had the harmony. Me and Kurt sung everything in harmony together. It was like the Everly right. Brothers. There wasn't a line without harmony. And so wow. when I moved here, hearing my voice on my own was so disconcerting <laughs> and I, I had to adapt as a musician and learn to sing on my own and that spawned a whole new thing i started doing my own kind of songs it started changing my writing and i've actually done shows that have been only originals here in kimberly in a few different places and that's been really gratifying so if i can do more of that at the festivals that would be promoting an album singing songs from a recent album that to me would be fantastic I've really enjoyed listening to the two of you talk. We've covered the metaphysical to the existential. Uh, in, in both cases, I wanted to jump in. I was hugely influenced by existential philosophy growing up, and it shaped my view of the world. As Jean-Paul Sartre would say, man makes himself. We determine the future that we want and the life we want, and we make it happen. There is no preordained destiny, although I know Nietzsche uh, did believe in destiny, but Sartre and others did not. That's a great conversation. I have a question for both of you, though. And this would be a question that I would typically ask CEOs running big corporations. What keeps you up at night? And I'm asking you both that in relation to your music. Ben, do you want to take that one first? Yeah, sure. Because I'm thinking it's going to be a different answer than yours. What really keeps me up at night at this point is running out of time. And I hate to say that, but it's the truth. Most other things don't bother me. I'm so far down the road. I'm actually just getting into doing a whole new kind of music because of COVID, doing the thing on my own in my bedroom. I'm really jazzed about it. But creatively, I know myself so well, and I've pushed myself so far, like farther than I thought I would ever go. And yet I know there's further to go because I do believe in what you said, the Sartrean thing. I believe in our ability to manifest greater aspects of ourselves than we know. But I've got this huge volume of material. So it's, it's something you could relate to, Oliver. And there's a tiny fraction of it 
that's out in the world. And for a long time, I didn't really care about that because I'm really not motivated by fame or attention. I'm really not. To me, they're sort of necessary evils of the you know byproducts of this business where it's like, if I were a lot more famous, I assume I would be better off. I'm not sure that I would be really, but it is true that I just want to leave. I, I, just, I just want to acquit myself of all the gifts of creativity that I've been given. I say that without feeling everyone in the world needs to hear this. No, it's not that, but I want to prove to, I want to acquit myself of those gifts because I do feel they were gifts that were given to me. And I've got to give it out. And I'm just hoping I still have enough time left to do it. So that's what keeps me up at night. Maybe a kind of a mundane answer, but. No, it's a good one. Yeah, I, I think I'd even agree with that to a large extent for myself. It reminds me of the, what's the movie where he goes into the bus and in Alaska and... and oh, the, uh, the wild. Oh, yeah. In the wild. Into the wild. Into the wild, yeah. yeah. Where yeah. He's, he's trying to be alone. And at the very end, he writes in his journal, happiness is only real when shared. And it sort of goes back right. to that relativity aspect of tree falls in the woods. Do you hear it? It's, if you right. have these gifts, you have this stuff flowing through you and you really do need to share it. And I think that's a bit of what keeps me up too. I need to muster up the energy and the, the courage and all that kind of stuff to make it so, because it's not just going to happen on its own. Right. And you could get hit by a bus tomorrow. So get off your yeah. butt and do it. <laughs> well, that's, that's right. Yeah. That's what I got to tell myself. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at a shelf that has all of my writing on it that I haven't yet digitized. Like, Scores and scores of notebooks I've filled with songs and fragments and ideas over the years. And I keep trying. I'm so bad at doing things systematically. But I keep trying to digitize it just so that I could, every once in a while, I'll be like, oh, my God, what if there's a fire? We're here in California. There's my work. Up, my life's work. Uh, like, yeah, up in smoke, smoke. You know? Yeah. And, and that's just the written part of it. But I completely agree with you. I did a lot of traveling. I went around the world by myself. And on the one hand, I met great people because of that, because I wasn't with anyone. So I was really open to the people that I met and really appreciative of them. But there were so many times when I saw something amazing and turned around to go, oh my, look at that. Like in the Himalayas sharing, to me, it's like no man is an island. That, that really informs it for me. If we can get together in person, I'd love to swap stories about your travels. I, I did six totally months or nice. so uh, around the world and spent three of those in India. So I'd love to to chat with you about that in person, maybe over some beers Same. around a campfire. <laughs> sure. Right sure. at a music yeah. festival in Kimberley. There you, there go. you go. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, that is how we would like to cap off the, the first season of sure. Pass the Jam is, if possible, to create something beyond all the musicians together, whether it be out here, which would be great. I know Ben's a, a big driving fan. It'd be nice well, to do something that's that, lasting. Right. But Oliver, when I hear that you and your now wife just took a, a turn and drove 10 hours so that you could see Kimberly, that <laughs> warms my heart. So I feel I have to live up to that, too. You. Guys, I really appreciate you both coming on the show. It's been fascinating for me to hear you talk deeply about songwriting and your motivations. A ton of fun for us and I think for our listeners. Same. 
the jam has been officially passed now to Oliver McQuaid, <laughs> now the holder of the jam. And for our audience, yeah. please visit our, our show blog. There'll be some information about Oliver. We'll make uh, sure that you hear all the tracks over the next month or so as we play them for the intros and outros to the show. And then, of course, we'll have a, a culminating episode where we play all the tracks. Ben, I can't thank you enough. You've been one of the most gracious uh, co-hosts, certainly, that I've ever had. <laughs> now, mind you, it's My only pleasure, been less than a year, I, I, but... <laughs> You've been super supportive, and it was great to have you on the show. People loved your episode. I'm sure they're going to love this one. I hope you'll come join us again on on future episodes of the show. I would never have met Oliver if it wasn't for you and for this show, and I'd like to meet him in person now. Really, jam. It's been a real pleasure for me, so thank you so much, Blake. Oh, you're most welcome. I would love to come up there and jam and... I'll bring some kind of Gretsch. That's my promise. Oh, that sounds <laughs> nice. good. I'm a Gretsch fan. No, likewise, Ben. I, I really appreciate taking the time to, to get to know me, and it's been really cool getting to know you. So I can't wait for the, the next stage of that. If you ever have anything that you want to ask me about or talk or just shoot the breeze or whatever, feel free to, to text me, and I can call Canada for free anytime. I'm happy to call you. Cool. I appreciate chat. that. Awesome. Yeah, man. For right sure. On. Cool. All right, Ben. Thanks again, man. Okay. We'll talk soon. And Oliver, thank you. You've been a great guest. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've loved this episode. And I'm looking forward to playing your songs for the next month or so. And, of course, getting back together with you again to pass the jam to the next artist for what it's worth. My, my brother. Only lovers see.